welcome to our uh, Cultivating Spiritual Competency for Mental Health Providers. My name is Pinese Joshua. That's Pinese, like niece of a pine tree. Um, today has been kind of wonky so far, so <laughs> I'm glad. I hope we can get to, to through this uh, collaboratively. Um, so a little bit about myself. I'm trained as a cultural anthropologist. I am an educator. I um, my research focuses on documenting worldviews and, and rituals of indigenous elders related to sacred places in nature and, and how these frameworks impact uh, greater uh, sustainability in the community, including um, well-being and mental health. Um, I am a mental health advocate. I am a consumer. Um, for the last couple of years, I've been a trainer for peer support specialist. Um, in LA County, uh, SPA five. <laughs> so, so that's a little bit about me. I'm I'm very happy to uh, to share space with you today. So let's let's jump in. Um, I want to start by saying thank you, thank you so much for your service. You guys are are you know first responders in my my purview. Um, Sixteen thousand unique clients served, and give yourselves a hand. <laughs> Take a moment, all right? Um, so today, as we um, as look at uh, religion and spirituality, um, just a, a little bit of housekeeping. So Jean is gonna be monitoring the chat room. Um, the presentation is set up in three mods. Um, and so after the first mod, I think we might do a breakout or, or maybe not, but we will have some type of discussion um, at the end of each mod. And then there'll be, um, if time permits, some Q&A, further Q&A at the end of the training. Um, I, at the end of the, the training, I have some resources, um, some recommended reading um, that you might find um, useful. And also toward the, at the end of the training, Jean will be loading the eval. So please take a moment and, and fill that out. Um, our, any feedback is very much appreciated. Okay. Um, so as I mentioned for the training today, um, we're gonna do three mods. The first mod we're gonna be looking at religion, spirituality, which in the literature and it's referred to as RS. So if I'm using RS throughout the presentation, that's what I'm referring to. So we'll be, we'll be looking at RS and mental health practice. We'll review a quick review of the research, and then we'll define some of the concepts, looking at culture, diversity, identity, competence, how these are defined. Um, and if any of you folks were here last week, a couple of these slides might be um, a, a review from, from last week as well. But, you know, last week we looked at cultural humility and that really um, leads into cultural, uh, um, spir uh, spiritually sensitive practices. And then in mod one, we're gonna move into the three primary domains of spiritual competence and then we'll have a, a recap. Moving into mod two, we, we will be uh, looking at conducting the spiritual assessment. Um, we'll be looking at a FICA tool, a HOPE tool, and we'll have a chance to talk about spiritual emergency strategies or spiritual crises. And then we'll do a recap and a, a discussion after that mod. And then the, the final mod, mod three, we'll be focusing on integrating spiritually sensitive practices. So we'll look at a couple of models, the biopsychosocial spiritual model, um, eight dimensions of wellness model, and um, we'll do a look at the a study that was done with uh, the LA County Department of Mental Health. And then again, a recap and some discussion and the survey or eval at the end. Um, each domain will be focusing on one primary part of the definition of spiritual competence. All right, so feel free to put things into the chat at any time. As I said, Jean will be monitoring it. And, you know, if there's, um, it, when we're in discussion, feel free to unmute yourselves, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> So let's start with, um, with mod one, uh, with our focus on domain one of spiritual competence. So a little bit of a, a backdrop to the research. Um, 
uh, about a little over 30 years ago, um, mid 80s into the 90s, uh, there was um, uh, kind of a shift um, in, in a lot of research in um, behavioral health. There is something called transpersonal research, transpersonal psychology, which is all about going beyond the ego and the self. Um, Stan Groff and his wife, Christina, they were very instrumental in moving this research forward and they were pioneers in what has been has come to be called the spiritual emergence or spiritual emergency movement. Um, they are widely cited in the literature. Um, in 1994, through a lot of their efforts and many others, um, the DSM-4 actually had for the first time ever a diagnostic category, uh, religious or spiritual problem. Um, and so uh, this was a huge shift in, in finding a place for addressing spirituality in the therapeutic setting. Um, and both the positive aspects of, of a spirituality with clients, as well as, you know, the crises mode. And moving from there, about 25 years ago, um, um, some folks really became much more focused and came up with domains and definitions um, and a lot of research, a lot of clinical trials and other type of research on spiritual competence. Um, and so they provided uh, a research-based roadmap to help professionals address um, the client's spiritual or be uh, religious beliefs in a treatment setting. These competencies that came about during this time, um, they were absolutely rooted in cultural humility and cultural competency. And we'll be reviewing that in a bit. Um, and then a little more recently, 15, 10, 15 years ago or so, um, there was an emergence of a much broader recognition between RS and mental health well-being. There was an updated entry in DSM-5 in 2013, um, which included separate topologies for religion and spirituality. Um, by 2015, um, it, it's again, ubiquitous in the literature, clinical trials, transdisciplinary studies, and even just like 2019, there's a really interesting study out of Columbia and Yale. Um, they, were the, the, they were positing that um, spirituality is actually part of the brain matter, that there is a neurological home in the uh, cerebral cortex, uh, regardless of one's um, belief systems or not. So a lot of interesting stuff, but um, you know, it's pretty much across the board uh, standardized in all mental health practices. Um, and so when we talk about spiritually sensitive care, this model just really kind of um, shows that the, the elements at stake are the institutions, you know, the, the wellness centers, rehabilitation, healthcare, the people who are the mental health providers, right? And then of course the individuals, um, the clients, their religious and spiritual values. These are all the elements that come into play. And um, the forces that bind these elements are ongoing research, which is happening quite a bit, um, implementation of practices and policies by institutions. Um, and so spiritual care is uh, the provision of interventions which um, assesses and addresses a client's spiritual need. And we really um, want to focus on the spiritual needs of the client, regardless of the worldviews or beliefs of the healthcare professional. Um, and so against that backdrop, um, I'm going to give a little, uh, just a, a kind of a snapshot of some outcomes of spiritually sensitive care um, from Brown and others. For the client experience, they, um, um, it's reported better overall mental health, better coping mechanisms with stress, and in particular anxiety and depression, decreased suicide attempts. Um, um, with clinical trials comparing um, RS treatment um, in introduction versus not, um, these outcomes were very po positive and uh, a meta-analysis of this showed that about 20% added benefit of symptom relief 
and 300% said there was an added benefit to overall well-being. And, you know, of course, this is provided that the client is interested in um, spiritual or religious work. Um, in the real, the real world, it's a patient-by-patient -patient basis. Um, but the benefits do go beyond the symptoms into growth-based thriving, the research suggests. Um, optimism, grit, and relational assets, you know, such as forgiveness, intimacy, commitment. Um, there are challenges that um, um, come up, and there are some poor outcomes and um, less treatment adherence when dealing with um, maybe more severe SMIs or with spiritual emergencies and crises. We'll talk about this again a little bit later. But um, you know, in general, if a client is extremely fragmented, no grasp on reality, no healthy ego capable of looking back and coming back to itself, then there, there may be um, need for some other um, types of evaluation and referrals. And the provider experience in the research has been positive therapeutic relationships. And um, this always assessing of um, one's uh, neutrality and ethical boundaries. All right, so let's, um, let's look at, you know, what is religion and what is spirituality? Um, there are so many definitions, but in general, Hodge in 2006 defined a religion as a culturally shared set of beliefs, values, and practices that have developed over time by those who share a similar experience of God and the transcendent. Whereas spirituality can be looked at or conceptualized as the subjective relationship with God, perhaps, or more broadly, a relationship with the sacred. And we'll be, um, we'll be parsing this. So religion um, can be looked at as clearly defined, right? You know, what you should believe, why, how. Um, there's usually a, a particular God or numerous gods involved in a religious worship. Um, there's theology, structured beliefs, moral codes. These are very broad strokes on, on defining religion. In spirituality, it's not so much a set of defined beliefs. It can be more um, of a loving relationship with oneself, others, and possibly something beyond, which most of the literature refer refers to as something sacred, right? So search for inner freedom, peace of mind, meaning, and purpose. Um, and so when we, I do wanna mention one other terminology that comes up in the literature and particularly at, at some work done at Stanford. Um, in addition to defining religion and spirituality, moral tradition is used and it's referred to as MT. So this idea of moral tradition is if um, someone may be atheist or um, humanist or, or secular beliefs. And so that does not involve any type of being or spiritual transcendence. Um, so moral tradition is defined as being more secular, philosophical, it's a blueprint for moral reasoning, guiding ethical behavior, and it's not a set of defined beliefs or practices. So uh, that's a term that will be um, coming up as well, moral tradition. When we look at the, um, the intersection of all of these, um, religion, spirituality, and moral tradition, Ultimately, um, all the research is saying is that no matter what, a, a client is looking for meaning in their life, some type of connection and belonging, some type of transcendence, which doesn't have to be spiritual, but some sort of moving beyond their ego, um, and some type of ritual or practice or belief, whatever that might be. Religion is much more traditional and the spirituality can look, be looked at as more individualistic and innate and universal. Um, so spirituality can be viewed in a variety of ways from a very traditional understanding of religion and spirituality um, all the way to a humanistic view, which is completely devoid of what we would call religion. Okay, um, so again, looking at uh, the two primary um, 
differences between religion and spirituality, um, we can say that religion is a search for a significance that occurs within a, a, an established context, right? It's contextual of that organization. Spirituality, on, their, on, on the other hand, is a search for something that is in general sacred um, and beyond the concepts of, of any type of structured ideology. So it's, you know, religion is looking at, again, um, within the context, spirituality is looking at the sacred. All right, and so, you know, a big question is this, well, why is it important in mental health? The, um, as I mentioned earlier, there's so much research on this, um, but on this screen, um, we have 79% of Americans said that they believe spiritual faith can help recover from disease and 63% felt that doctors should ask their patients about their spiritual beliefs. I know this slide indicates a doctor-patient um, um, hierarchy here, um, but all of the research that I'm referring to, um, it really is looking at provider-client or provider-consumer. So I just wanted to point that out. But surveys do indicate that 70, 70 to 80% use RS beliefs and activities to cope with daily difficulties and frustrations. Um, RS coping is highly prevalent in clients with SMI, um, and they perceive their spiritual needs as part of, of their overall care. Uh, so another graph from um, Pew Research gives us an, a snapshot of, and this in this research, it wasn't necessarily about mental health. It was just a general question of, is a religion important in one's life? And of the adults that were um, surveyed, 53% said it was very important versus 11% that said not at all. Um, this was in 2019, and in a few slides ahead, we'll be seeing how a lot of the, the landscape of, of um, religious and spiritual beliefs in, in the uh, U.S., it, it, they're shifting. The trends are shifting, and we'll take a look at that in a moment. Um, but let's get back to uh, the uh, definition of a spiritual competency in mental health practice. So again, it is very much rooted in uh, cultural humility and cultural competency. And just um, a quick recap. And so in cultural competency, the goal is to learn about other cultures, attitudes, skills, and knowledge to get this kind of continuum of proficiency to better worth work across different cultures. Um, there is no focus on understanding the practitioner's own values, attitudes, and beliefs in cultural competency. And so um, cultural humility was uh, created and put forth to sort of bridge that gap and to move from that endpoint of proficiency into a cultural, a cultural uh, humility framework, which really goes beyond um, just proficiency. Cultural humility focuses on openness, self-reflection, lifelong learning, um, a commitment to addressing and fixing power imbalances, and um, you know, cognitive flexibility. Uh, so cultural humility just really expands the idea of cultural competency. And then um, spiritual competency builds off of that and really looks at increasing respect and understanding of a client's spiritual need and how that impacts the relationship, the therapeutic relationship. Um, and so a quick review, um, again, with cultural competency and cultural humility, it's attitude, skills, and knowledge. And in blue here, I have sort of highlighted what the, um, the main focus of cultural humility, this self-reflection, lifelong learning, the fixing power imbalances, institutional accountability, and this ongoing cultural self-awareness. Um, as you know, culturally competent services are, are uh, its baseline in, in pretty much every um, public mental health organization across the country. Humility is a big part of that. This is a graph from LA County Department of Mental Health and um, the type of culturally competent services that we provide. And um, so again, a quick review of cultural competency and cultural humility. 
um, we want to move from this um, idea of um, these assumptions and observable traits of another culture into this continuous learning. We want to move away from this sort of limited view of the individuality in a culture. Culture is not a monolith into much more um, how the client defines their cultural identity and the power is shifted from the count, the, the practitioner to the client. And um, just always being aware that, you know, even with all of our expertise, it can lead to overconfidence and always be respectful and open and humble about learning new ways of how um, a client understands their lives. They are the expert on their life. Um, and so as the, the mental health practitioner and the stakeholder in working with cultural competency and cultural humility, um, it's always acknowledging these layers of cultural identity. Um, and this comes into play with um, spiritual competency. So Lukoff defines spiritual competency as um, the attitude, skills, and knowledge needing for understanding and addressing spiritual and religious backgrounds, beliefs, and practices as they relate to mental health. Um, it is a very, very important component of cultural competent care. Um, uh, spiritual competency enhances assessment skills. It uh, contributes to better therapeutic outcomes, better alliances. Um, the goal of spiritual competency, the goal as practitioners is not to learn the entire history of their religion or their spiritual worldview, but to learn their individual experience of that um, RS or um, worldview and how it relates to the work that you two will be doing together. That's the goal. Okay, so moving into the three main um, domains, these are put forth by Hodge. Um, and uh, again, these are pretty ubiquitous in, in looking at sort of how we break down spiritual competency in mental health practice. So the first domain is self-reflection. Self always, the practitioner is always reevaluating and assessing and looking at their own beliefs worldviews, biases, assumptions, and any limitations. Um, the second domain focuses on knowledge um, uh, and understanding of the client's spiritual worldview is the main thrust here. And then the third domain uh, looks at implementation and intervention strategies and what things would be appropriate and relative to the client's uh, spiritual worldview. So let's jump in. So spiritual, I'm sorry, spiritually sensitive practice. Again, attitudes, skills, and knowledge. It's beyond all of that kind of um, proficiency to having no endpoint in, in to cultivating spiritual sens sensitivity. It is a journey, not a destination. Remembering to being able to define our own individual values and ways of identity identifying and our own RS worldviews, um, being non-judgmental, respecting clients' spiritual worldviews is very important. And of course, developing um, consumer-driven or, or client-centered interventions. Um, so we'll jump off and with this big question, how aware are you of religious and spiritual diversity? Let's take a look at some, uh, some religious diversity. Um, on this screen, um, we have um, sort of a, a historical and cultural context of religion. I've, I've created a timeline here. And these are just the major um, organized or orthodox religions in, in the world. About 2000 years before the current era, Hinduism emerged from many, many, many gods, right? It's polytheistic. Um, and then Judaism, Buddhism, Christianity, and Islam. That's the chronological historical order of the emergence of, of some of the major world um, religions. Uh, and so I have here in dark blue, the three um, um, monotheistic religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. These are Abrahamic traditions. 
And then in gray, we have Hinduism and Buddhism and sort of, you'll see that in a cultural context, they built off of each other. Um, so um, of course there are many, 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 many denominations of all of these religions, but um, just to look at religion in a sort of historical context. So um, the, uh, in Christianity, Jesus was born Jewish because it, it you know, Judaism was in, in, uh, was in existence prior to Christianity um, formed as a religion. And the same with um, Hinduism and Buddhism. The Buddha uh, was born um, Hindi, you know, Siddhartha, um, because Buddhism didn't exist when, Hindu, um, when Hinduism was already in existence. Um, and I don't know if you're looking over here on the right side, but um, do you see Pastafarianism? <laughs> most, most in, in all of my trainings, people do notice that. Um, and so, yeah, I, that, I had to include that, you know, in 2000, 2005, a grad student um, really started this sort of philosophical movement to counter um, um, intelligent design. Uh, and uh, it's, it's a thriving belief system. So, you know, we have to have some levity about this, right? <laughs> Okay, I want to mention that in addition to um, the major world religions, it's important to remember that um, indigenous beliefs and moral traditions are very much a part or may be a big part of um, some of our clients' belief systems. And so looking at indigenous um, beliefs, these predate orthodox religions. I mean, before Hinduism, um, there was animism, tribalism, shamanism, um, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And animism in general is um, an acknowledgement or a belief that spirit or consciousness is in nature. It's in actually everything, you know, everything um, is sentient. Uh, um, so these belief systems, um, and a lot of them actually um, were sort of a, an impetus for some of the organized religions to form to kind of, kind of tap, tamp down some of these belief systems as in paganism. Um, so that's just a good thing to remember in a historical context that indigenous beliefs do predate orthodox religions. Um, and then we also have um, being an atheist, which is, you know, belief in nothing divine. Um, but even believing in nothing is a form of belief, one could posit. <laughs> Agnostic is, um, you know, belief that there may be a God, but not sure, or there is no real way or one way of defining that. And then secular and humanist, and these can be looked at as moral traditions. Um, all right, so moving on to with a little bit further with um, RS diversity in general, some of the um, some of the, the broad universals is that most belief systems have a type of creation myth or sacred story. Um, there are some types of concepts of the divine. Um, there are clear-cut life cycles and calendar-based rituals. Um, you know, this the liminality of moving from um, boyhood to man, et cetera, et cetera. Various types of sacred people, text, objects, and spaces. But the ultimate goal of most belief systems, I, as you know, an anthropologist, we say the ultimate goal of all belief systems is to explain or bring order to the mysteries of human existence. All right, so that brings us to our first domain, um, awareness of one's personal value-informed worldview, along with assumptions, limitations, and biases. So let's, let's do a quick survey of this first domain, how we can become more aware of, of uh, our own worldviews. And to start talking about worldviews and biases, we need to take a quick look at culture. What does culture mean? Um, because religion and culture, culture are intimately connected. Um, and so culture is an integrated patterns of learned human behavior. These are um, learned values and they're learned from the members of that particular culture or society. We learn how to act and how to view the world around us. 
we learned what is, we learn, you know, how to be normal, <laughs> right? Um, what is uh, assumed to be normal in a particular culture. Um, culture is very complex, it's constructed, symbolic, um, you know, uh, symbols such as thumbs up in one culture can mean good job, in another culture it can mean something very derogatory. Um, and so when we think about culture, um, you know, the old trusted iceberg <laughs> um, view of it is that at the tip of the iceberg, we see what's called the visible culture. This is our language, our art, our, our traditions, our food, how we operate in the world, how we interact with each other. That's what we call a visible culture. But below the surface is what is referred to um, as the invisible culture. And this is really where all the good stuff goes on. This is where the beliefs, values, and worldviews res reside. And it's right here at this part of culture that really, really, really pushes up and dictates what's going on in the visible culture. So these beliefs, values, and worldviews that are shared and constructed and created by a culture are very powerful things. And sometimes those take a little bit longer to shift and change. And then at the widest or lowest part of the iceberg is what is considered the um, common humanity. You know, it's the way we all love and laugh and cry and think. And, you know, it's that th these two lower parts of the iceberg where, um, um, as practitioners, we really want to be able to work with cultural humility and um, uh, spiritually sensitive practices. Of course, mental health practices are absolutely culturally determined um, across the board. The way we conduct research, the way we consider what is normal, the way we diagnose. Um, so um, let's, uh, let's take a, a look at worldview and identity, which is a big part of domain one. Um, and so like culture, um, our worldviews are constructed. They are psychological beliefs that are held by a member of a group or an individual. They are ideologies and values and perspectives. I like to call them the lens or the framework. It's like a blueprint of how to operate in the world. These shift and evolve um, as um, do our identities. Identities are fluid qualities. They are beliefs and values, self-expressions. They might be physical and otherwise. Um, identity is held on um, as a collective and both individually, um, you know, so it's really important to, to always kind of uh, reassess and think about how do you identify your religious beliefs and worldviews or um, RS beliefs and worldviews. Um, identity in um, the religious landscape in America is certainly shifting. Um, on this graph, on this pie chart rather, um, if you look um, in this large swath between the dotted lines here, the bulleted lines, these are all um, um, denominations of, of Christianity. And so Christianity is the largest um, religion uh, that people identify with in America. But if you, if you look over here to the unaffiliated, this kind of peach, this is huge. This is what's growing in um, the, the US. This of people who are claiming to be unaffiliated with any particular uh, religious belief system. Uh, and so in um, America, this is actually 2019 from Pew Research, 31% of Americans say that they are neither religious nor spiritual. 29% say both, 22% say religious but not spiritual, and 18% says spiritual but not religious. And so this, this way of um, uh, these uh, shifting religious twin trends will certainly impact sort of the language that we use when taking assessments and making sure that um, you know, our language is neutral and not offending someone who may, be, may consider themselves deeply spiritual, but not religious um, or, or vice versa. When we talk about identity, there is this intersectionality that happens. All identities are interconnected. And as practitioners, our biases and worldviews overlap this intersectionality. So it's really important to be aware of our worldviews and um, our identity and our culture. And we need to recognize when biases happen, 
um, and when they occur in our practices. Um, spirituality lies at, at the heart of many of our, our clients' core values, and, and it helps them to shape their perceptions of the world. So it's really important to, to address and, and look at some of those spiritual worldviews. A quick review on biases, um, you know, okay. So a bias is just sort of slanted for or against something. You know, I could be biased for spinach, of which I am. I love spinach. You know, <laughs> I'm biased against um, artichokes, right? Um, me having a bias against artichoke, I don't, artichokes, you know, it's not going to um, cause any major injustices on the planet, one would hope. But some biases can be very detrimental. Um, so bias is just sort of this off-kilter judgment. A prejudice is something um, prejudging a person. A stereotype are broad generalizations. And discrimination is sort of um, an action. It is, um, you know, a legal or otherwise is some type of formal action or the way we treat a person or a group based on the above three. Um, and so as practitioners, there are a lot of culturally informed strategies that we can use when dealing with bias. I mean, you know, our brains make assumptions. It's just the way we operate. Um, <clears throat> so it's really important to be aware of our biases. I think I, um, the biases are often unconscious or implicit. Um, I think last week I mentioned um, a bias that I had against our uh, female people, females who are, you know, heavily tatted up or or have a lot of extreme body piercing. And you know, I mentioned that you know I'm very open and worldly, and you know, my my flag fl flies for tolerance. Um, but for some reason, I would always have this kind of knee jerk reaction. Um, and I had to acknowledge that bias and unpack it. And, you know, I use strategies to always immediately counter a bias that comes up for me with humility and, and being non-judgmental. Um, and so these are things that we have to, um, to learn and to keep into practice because um, research shows that uh, biases, biases on our part can absolutely impact um, health outcomes with the people um, that we work with. Um, you know, it's really important to keep a much tighter filter on our own biases, norms, and beliefs to better serve our clients. These are, these are three sort of prompts. How do you identify your um, religious or spiritual worldview? Think of a time when you were not as effective as you wanted to be for someone when discussing their religion, spirituality, identity, or worldview. How did this make you feel? What norms or values or biases may have kept you from connecting? So let's move on to mod two. Um, we're looking at um, conducting the spiritual assessment. Uh, so the, the domain two of spiritual competency says we want to look at strength, have a strength-based understanding of the client's spiritual worldview. And one way to really get an understanding of that is to um, uh, is through an assessment process. In the assessment process, some of the protocols are, you know, we wanna have a very natural conversational um, interaction, be respectful, non-threatening, empathy, listening, um, developing treatment plans, strengthening the therapeutic relationship, being mindful of our neutrality and our transference or counter-transference, and, um, and really looking at renewal, renewal, sorry, resiliency and growth. Um, these are some things that the client will experience. Um, so some of the protocols are to take the history, the RS history, um, to attend to spiritual or religious topics in a clinical setting, to know when and how to make referrals, right? If topics emerge that are beyond the scope of your competency, to, to be able to know that um, you can refer those to um, other uh, sources and to hold clear ethical boundaries regarding your own religious or spiritual beliefs. So it's always good to, to think about after taking the survey, or um, the assessment um, to follow up on the patient's preferences. If there are any for treatment, be supportive. 
um, be interested in, in their understanding of their belief systems. When we talk about referrals, I mean, it can be, of course, to someone um, trained in uh, um, RS competency or even something like uh, group meetings, support group meetings, spiritual communities, specialized therapy, um, or professionally certified spiritual counselor, counselors, et cetera. There are quite a few resources out there for referral. So let's take a look at um, the first assessment tool that's, wide, tool that's widely used, and it's called um, the FICA, FICA. Um, it uh, was developed by uh, Christina Puchowski in, in 2000, and for um, this, you begin with, oh, they're all open-ended, humble questions. Do you, uh, for faith and belief is the first category. And you can ask a, uh, a client, do you have spiritual beliefs that help you cope with stress? Um, and if they say no, or you know, they might answer, or if they say no, you can follow up with something like, what gives your life meaning? All right. Um, and then you move on to uh, the importance of RS, um, you know, have your beliefs influenced how you take care of yourself? And you can expand on that. And then you move into community. You know, are you part of a religious or spiritual community? Is this of support to you? If so, how? And then the final thing we, you move to is um, address and care. How would you like me to address these issues in your health care? I mean, some of you may already be doing assessments of this nature, these can take, you know, they, they can be very brief or they can be more extended, um, but there are, this is a very powerful tool that's being used. Um, when we talk about, um, you know, referring people or, or, you know, the religious communities, this can, or spiritual communities, this can involve anything. Again, a community can be a church, a temple, a synagogue, a mosque, um, it could be a self-help support group community or other non-traditional communities. So um, always keep in mind uh, that there are broad definitions. Um, another important tool uh, to navigate spirituality and clinical practice is called the HOPE tool. Um, and this looks at sources of hope, organized religion, moves into personal spirituality and practices, and then effects on care. So it kind of mirrors the, the FICA, but there's just a sort of a, a, a different way of asking, beginning with uh, what are your sources of hope, peace, comfort, and strength? What do you hold on to during difficult times? And then moving on to asking um, about organized religions and how does it help and how, and then making it more personalized if necessary, what aspects of your spirituality or spiritual practices do you find most helpful? Um, and then finally, about effects on care and, and possible uh, recommendations for treatment. You know, um, how does the current situation you find yourself in affect your ability to do the things that usually help you spiritually? And um, is there anything I can do to help you access resources? Um, and always important, any restrictions I should know about. It might be something as simple as um, food intake or, you know, the wearing of a head covering or not. Or so always, always, you know, ask about the, in a broad way, any restrictions that I should know about. Um, okay, so we do have a short video clip here. Um, this is... Um, a quick overview on actually conducting the assessment. This is uh, put together by Lukoff and he was one of the writers of the 2013 entry in the DSM-5. He came up with something called the, um, a, he developed a standards of practice, the SIOP, he calls it, I think, or the SOP. I don't know how he pronounces it. Um, but uh, this particular um, assessment tool is kind of a combination of the FICA and the HOPE that we just looked at, um, but it's widely used at VA, at VA hospitals, Kaiser, um, a lot of public mental health departments use it. So let's take a look.
Screening questions are used to determine if a client views him or herself as a religious or spiritual person and what their core religious and spiritual beliefs and practices are. Most of the U.S. population identifies with a religion, in contrast to many countries such as in Europe. To set a context, here are some important descriptive statistics about religion and spirituality in the USA. Seven in ten Americans identify with some branch of the Christian faith. An increasing number identify with non-Christian religions. The share of Americans who identify with non-Christian faiths has been increasing, rising to 5.9% in 2014. Growth has been especially great amongst Muslims and Hindus. The percentage of Americans who are religiously unaffiliated, describing themselves as atheist, agnostic, or nothing in particular, unaffiliated with any form of organized religion, has been growing and is now almost one quarter of the U.S. population. There are now approximately 56 million religiously unaffiliated adults in the USA. This group, sometimes called religious nuns, is more numerous than either Catholics or mainline Protestants, according to a Pew Foundation survey. Yet more than a third of people unaffiliated with a faith tradition classify themselves as spiritual but not religious. Two-thirds of them say they believe in God. More than half say they often feel a deep connection with nature and the earth. With people who self-identify as atheist, agnostic, secular humanist, or just uninvolved and uninterested in religion or spirituality, as well as with persons who do not identify with Christianity, it is important to use terms that do not have a Christian connotation. The words church, prayer, worship, Bible, sacraments, and God when used with clients who do not hold a belief system that includes these elements, could create a barrier to building a therapeutic alliance. The ESOP interview provides alternative words, such as faith, spiritual community, spiritual practices, meditation, spiritual literature, and higher power or force. However, with such individuals, you can ask questions to identify alternative sources for meaning. Note that the first question does not specify religious or spiritual beliefs. Instead, it asks, what helps the client cope? Do you have any beliefs or practices that help you cope with difficulties or stress? Many clients will spontaneously mention religion or spirituality but if they don't, you can ask a more direct question. For some people, their religion and or spirituality are a source of strength and comfort in dealing with life's challenges. Are they for you? If they answer no, you can probe to see if there is possible interest based on the client's past experience. Were they ever? If both answers are no, Ask, what are your sources of hope and strength when you face life's challenges? Many of the following ESOP questions can be rephrased to alternative sources of meaning. Often, the answers to the screening question reveal a specific religious organization, such as a church, or a specific personal spiritual practice, such as walking in nature. You can then follow up with additional questions from the ESOP sections on organized religion and spirituality or personal religious and spiritual practices. So that gives a brief overview of um, what uh, the assessment entails. 
I do want to mention um, at, when we're talking about uh, spiritual assessment tools, we really need to discuss this concept of spiritual emergence and spiritual emergency um, that the literature talks quite a bit about. And so a spiritual emergence is a process of awakening spiritually. You know, the phenomena is usually not problematic. It can be very helpful when a client um, comes to some um, deeper uh, sense of self and, and purpose. Um, however, on the other hand, spiritual emergency or crises um, can be looked at as more of a full-blown crisis. It's the phenomena can be overwhelming. Um, sometimes a, a, a spiritual crises can even be positive, but in the most for most um, of the the literature, they're talking about this sort of emergence uh, that might move into an emergency or crises. Um, and so, some of the categories that are listed um, when we talk about um, spiritual emergence and crises. Um, our meditation, near-death experiences, shamanic crisis, mystical experiences, past lives, hearing voices, loss of faith. Um, spiritual and religious issues, right? Um, sometimes they can be difficult to, to distinguish from manic, psychotic, or other uh, clinical system, uh, symptoms. And, and there may be, we may need to make a referral in those cases. Um, but it's always important to remember that um, sometimes what we might think is something that's um, detrimental to the client uh, is really their way of, um, of coping. And that's where some of these assessments come in. Um, a, an example of a crisis, it doesn't have to be someone who's you know, not connected with reality necessarily. But an example of a, a spiritual crisis can be someone who is uh, leaving a controlling religious faith, you know, especially if they were born and raised in that faith. And this can create a lot of stress and panic and disrupt um, their life, their sense of purpose, their sense of self and their worldviews. So uh, that's a, a good way to look at um, emergencies that aren't necessarily full blown. What we're gonna be looking at um, are some spiritual and emergency crises criteria. And these are nine screening questions that can help make determinations for treatment. And so first ask, uh, could a medical issue explain what the symptom, the client's system symptoms? Is the client functioning well physically, socially, and emotionally? Is the client finding meaning in his or her experience. And so one of the key things we wanna do is to normalize, right? Just to normalize, um, understand their experience with humble inquire, inquiry. You also want to perhaps reduce environmental stimulation, you know, if the, if the person is presenting agitated. Um, the next set of, uh, of uh, competencies that they look at is, is the client coherent? in his presentation? Can uh, she reflect on her experience or demonstrate insight into it? And does did the onset occur after an event or was it spontaneous? Um, there are recommendations that, you know, we might want to um, maybe suggest to the client that they might want to temporarily discontinue their spiritual practice. You know, if you're dealing with someone with um, uh, uh, doing practicing yoga to a degree that's causing them physical harm, you know, you you might want to you know unpack how how uh, discontinuing that practice might help better meet their goals in therapy. Um, and then the last set looks at is the experience acute or chronic? Um, does a client have language context about? his experience? And finally, does the client have social support or is he isolated? Um, and they, the, the research suggests uh, encouraging simple and calming grounding activities um, when interacting with the client, drawing, painting, music, etc. Um, and then evaluate for referral um, if necessary. And so, um, you know, 
This is uh, Stan Grop, and he was one of the uh, proponents of transpersonal psychology. And he actually coined the term non-ordinary experiences because he really wanted to move away from treatment that is just absolutely severe, you know, hospitalization, medication, to treatment that is much more less restrictive and more health promoting. So um, we're going to move past this short video. And because uh, I really wanted to be able to have a little bit of time for a discussion. And so um, any questions or anything in the chat that you want to put in for domain two, um, looking at the um, assessment. So maybe if any of you have actually done a spiritual assessment, um, you can let us know if it was helpful or think about how you might deal with a client in a spiritual crisis. So in mod three, we're going to be looking at integrating um, spiritually sensitive practices, right? So that's the, the focus of domain three. And um, again, the last domain talks about designing and implementing intervention strategies that are relevant and sensitive to the client's uh, spiritual worldview. So um, at, to start off, you know, the biopsychosocial model is pretty much the backdrop to all of our interventions. Um, and this was created in 1977. Um, however, an extended model has been created, which adds a fourth domain of spiritual, a spiritual domain. Um, and all of these uh, are interacting in a complex manner in health and, and disease and SMI and mental and um, well-being. Um, so this um, holistic and integrative framework um, in mental health care is really important, uh, the literature is stating. You know, when we look at the spiritual domain of the, the model, we look at a client's practices, beliefs, their meaning making, their connection, um, and mindfulness or centering practices. And so all of this ties into um, what um, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Agency um, puts forth as part of their eight dimensions of wellness model. Uh, and in the spiritual um, vector of this model, it is all about expanding one's sense of purpose and meaning and um, recognizing uh, the client's search for, for meaning in their existence developing an appreciation for life. And I don't know if you've, if any of you have used this model, but they have some really wonderful checklists and worksheets for clients when um, sort of mapping out um, their spiritual um, journey and how that impacts the, the therapeutic work. Um, and then finally, I wanted to take a, a look at a, an exploratory report that was done back in 2014 on spiritually infused best practices in LA County Department of Mental Health. They were looking at services provided at wellness centers and client run centers. Uh, there was a a diverse range of services um, for, for folks dealing with SMI, including recreation, wellness, community, and inclusion. Um, most of these services did not include organized religion. Um, and this was really uh, made clear in the, in the report because they were saying that this should challenge the popular conception that organized religion is a primary component of services that need to be provided. Um, that's it's less than, I think it was 8% of all the, the places did not have any type of organized religion. Um, and so um, it's recommended that this can be integrated into all phases of services, assessment, treatment, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, in all settings, um, it has to be consumer driven um, for positive outcomes. And so um, the report showed that um, out of uh, 53 wellness and client run centers that participated in, in the study, um, that 98% offered spiritually infused services. Um, and so this was very prevalent in both uh, wellness and client run centers. That's great. Um, when we talk about uh, spiritually infused recreation, they were describing it as crafts, writing, drawing, painting, music, dancing, singing, and chanting. 
And um, that was the highest percentage of, of uh, recreation, types of recreation being offered. And then um, we went into close by that was self-awareness activities at 83%. And those include um, forms of meditation, mindfulness, nature walks, yoga, tai chi, et cetera. Um, and then um, down on the bottom left box, we have spiritual support groups. Um, uh, and that was 64.2%. You know, that includes 12 step support groups or spiritually focused support groups or support groups that are for agnostics or atheists. Um, in general, this idea of um, self-help support groups as being a, a resource for a, a community was, was um, very well received. Um, and then about um, a little more than half of them talked about community inclusion outings. So this would be things like visiting religious sites or having folks from um, spiritual religious communities come into the centers um, and um, then the last one, um, which didn't um, rank much in the percentage wise, but I just wanted to mention that in terms of religious activities, people would um, read religious texts. Um, they would be involved in prayer or types of rituals or, or sacred cultural um, performances. So this, these are very positive outcomes um, with the LA County Department of Mental Health. Um, and I also wanted to mention real quickly this idea of integration of mindfulness. So much research has been done um, on the positive impact of mindfulness, how it cultivates self-compassion and non-judgment, greater mental well-being. There are many forms of it. Down here in blue, I have um, MBSR, which is a clinical practice that um, is taught quite a bit, mindfulness based stress reduction, and in particular, one body scan meditation. It's just a, a wonderful tool to have. And so if you haven't had training in that, who knows, maybe um, maybe the folks here, uh, the PM uh, HP folks will have a mindfulness training session with me coming up. <laughs> so um, this is just something that is used across the board. So I did wanna mention the research on that. And then kind of winding it down, when we look at ethical ideals, when we talk about um, integrating practices into ser and services, um, some of the broad scopes from the American Counseling Associations and other is um, do no harm, neutrality, avoid inappropriate influence, and informed consent, which may be situational. And so, you know, when we're um, talking about religion and spirituality and, and moral traditions or whatever, it may raise strong feelings um, as practitioners, you know, and it may preclude clear and optimal thinking. And we want to be aware of that. No one, no, no homo sapien sapien is 100% neutral or objective. And so just always be aware of that self-reflection. And um, when we talk about informed consent, that might happen if there's some type of, you know, alternative or psychotropic therapies that might be in play. Um, I know that um, when I worked with a recovery center um, with a Native American population um, or clients um, working with sweat lodges, we needed to get informed consent for those adults to participate um, in the sweat lodge ceremonies. Um, and so, you know, just um, to, uh, to put it all into conclusion. Um, so when we're practicing spiritual sensitivity, we always wanna, you know, always learn more about how this is related to mental health, right? We want respect. Oh, good, someone's sharing and, and writing on the screen. I like it, <laughs> keep doing that. Um, we want respect for individualized um, experiences of religion and spirituality. We always want to work within our boundaries, right? Um, if we need to, uh, to, to make referrals, we can do that. Ongoing self-reflection and awareness. And, um, and we want to recognize and manage our own biases. Do not pretend they don't exist. We all have biases. And finally, always be aware of our humility as a counter to everything that we're doing. When you listen like you mean it, 
that's a form of humility. And that's a, that's a hard skill to maintain. Um, you know, practicing spiritual sensitivity, it really gives a more min- meaningful and trust-filled therapeutic relationships. It helps us develop more comprehensive treatment plans, including assessments and referrals. And ultimately it provides spiritual agency, you know, for our clients. It gives them the respect and support for their exploration and their ability to function in the world in a compassionate and um, um, a lot of empathy and, and improve the outcomes of their SMIs or whatever other challenges they may be unpacking and dealing with. All right, I think that's it. So for our domain three recap, um, we were just gonna ask, um, are you practicing, how does practicing spiritual competency connect to your individual team treatment goals? Um, have you encountered any ethical challenges, you know, while engaging um, these issues with clients and how were they managed? And then the third one is how do you feel you can implement strategies in your own practice? So those are some things to think about, but I'm going to say thank you right now. You've been awesome. By the way, this image is of me doing field work with a Quechua shaman in the Peruvian um, Andes. Uh, and yes, that was a, a very powerful ritual that I was about to uh, embark on. So <laughs> uh, thank you again. Um, I, as I mentioned, there are some sources at the end of the presentation. These are just some images of some books that might be of interest. The one on the far left, Spiritual and Religious Competencies and Clinical Practices, this is really sort of you know, a sacred text when it comes to um, just a really uh, detailed overview of um, competencies and a lot of good worksheets and everything. Um, the Spiritual Assessment, Hodge is an excellent one to just flip through. Spirituality and Patient Care, these are all um, sort of, um, just current and really important. And then the last three that I recommend, um, Dr. Rosenberg and Bedlam, he's amazing. Some of you may have seen the the, um, documentary that was made based on this this text. Um, There are some um, interesting discussions in the book about spirituality and religion. Headcase was just released um, a couple of months ago, and these are LGBTQ writers, and uh, spirituality is, is addressed in some of these short stories from the perspective of clients as well as the perspective of practitioners. And then the Unapologetic Guide to Black Mental Health, um, Uh, Rita Walker, she's a hoot. (laughs) And this is a wonderful read. Um, There is an entire chapter on spirituality as it impacts the um, African-American community. So these are just a a few recommendations. All right. So with that, I bid you adieu. (laughs) Feel free to to email me with any, any questions after the training or at any time. Thank you all for attending. Yay, you are awesome.